If you're visiting this morning, you've missed nothing. Uh, we're uh, starting a new book. Uh, we're starting a book, the book of James, and I will give full credit. I, I don't know if he did this on purpose, but I'm going to assume that he did. Jason, really good job picking a book um, at the back half of the year, back half of the quarter. Um, there's no reason uh, that you have to be here the last class uh, in order to get anything. Uh, there's the book of James is a really good book to close out the year because of a few reasons I'm going to talk about as we introduce the book. Um, but yeah, as, as I mentioned before, if you haven't been here, you haven't missed anything. We talked about the book of uh, Galatians, and now we're transitioning to a new book. I'm going to cover uh, an introduction-type uh, session early on, and then we're going to talk about trials and temptations and how James sees trials and temptations uh, through, um, uh, throughout a couple of sections of his book. So we'll start in, in James chapter 1 here in a moment. The introduction to this letter is, is a lot different than the book of Galatians, different writer, uh, different context. Um, so first, um, let's talk about the first verse. I'm not going to go verse by verse. This is the one exception. Uh, James chapter 1 and verse 1 talks about the author and then talks about who it's, it's to, which is important for us to understand both in this class and in other classes. Um, we know the author is, is James, and we have three of them in the New Testament to pick from to try to figure out which James wrote this. I'm not going to linger too much on this topic because I'm not sure it's, it's, it's that important, but I feel like it's, it's worth commenting on so that we're, you at least know what page I'm on. Whether you're on that same page is up to you, but uh, you know, at least know what page I'm on for the next few weeks. Um, you've got James the Apostle, James the son of Zebedee that we meet in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 5. Um, this is the, the fisher, one of the fishermen turned apostle. This is uh, one of the witnesses of the config, transfiguration of Jesus in Matthew chapter 17. And this is the James killed by Herod the Great in Acts uh, chapter 12, which was very, very early on. Uh, in the New Testament history, and for really, the, that's the only reason that, that commentators and early church historians don't think that this was uh, the writer of the book of James is because of how early uh, that he died. The only reason that James, the son of Alphaeus, isn't uh, talked about as the author is because we don't know much about him. That's not really a good reason, but that's the only thing that we know as the reason that some people don't think that it was him, which leaves James, the half-brother of Jesus, as the other option. It's the option I'm going to carry. And again, if you read, if you read history, if you read kind of the others who have thought about this, this idea, it's, it's um, still circumstantial kind of evidence. It's still circumstantial and, and kind of early church father history as to those reasons why James, the brother of Jesus, uh, would have been would have been adopted. There's two early writers, like about a hundred years or so after this book was written, and after the, the New Testament was written, who claim that Jesus, the half brother of Jesus, wrote this book. And the other reason is that James, the half brother of Jesus, is you know circumstantially out of the three, the one who has the most prominence in early church history compared to the other two. 
Um, James, the, the son of Zebedee, obviously dies early, didn't have a chance to get a lot of, a lot of prominence. But we see James, the half-brother of Jesus, gets a lot. We talked about him in Galatians uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2 a few months back where James was considered a man of prominence that Paul was able to meet in Galatians chapter 1. And he was also a prominent member of the church in Galatians chapter 2 along with Peter uh, that, that, that Paul reasoned with before he left uh, talking about uh, circumcision. It's also written to a Jewish audience and uh, it would make sense for a person who was prominent amongst a Jewish church uh, to have written it. Um, so let's, let's go with the idea that James, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, writes the letter. He doesn't really mention anything about his life as a half-brother of Jesus. He mentions himself as a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I think there's a lot to be said to that. Um, why does he not mention himself as the brother of Jesus? Maybe the same reason that Peter rarely talks about his personal interaction with, with uh, Jesus in his letters. Maybe for the, very, the, the rare reason that Paul talks about his, his, his interaction with Jesus. Um, he only talks about it really in, in two of his 13 letters because it really didn't mean anything compared to what the description that James, James gives himself here, a bond servant of Jesus. He focuses on the message that comes through him because of the resurrection of Jesus and, and through the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> we know, it, again, let's go with Bill's, uh, Bill's line of thinking for a little bit. Josephus talks about what happened to the half-brother of Jesus uh, in, in a history of, of, of Jews uh, early on. In, uh, in, in, uh, in kind of some somewhat parallel times to Jewish history. And now Caesar, upon hearing the death of Festus and Albinus into Judea as procurator, now Festus was now dead and Albinus was but on, upon the road. So he assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ, whose name was James and some others or some of his companions. And when he had formed an accusation against him as the breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. So at some point in history, um, this man was, was killed for breaking the law, you know, the law of, of Moses. We could put this, this book early on, um, <coughs> excuse me, early on in, in the um, kind of the history in the New Testament, let's call it around the time of, of Paul's early writings, of maybe 50, 49, 50, 51 A.D. or so. Um, and it's written to Jewish people. We see that in James chapter 1 and verse 1. That's going to be important as we go through the rest of this book. So that's why I want to kind of talk about it uh, in a meaningful way in the introduction. It says, to the tribes who are dispersed abroad, there are scattered Jewish Christians is, is the audience uh, that, is, that is mentioned here. If you'll bear with me just a second, I'm going to read something from Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. So in Acts chapter 7, G, uh, Stephen has, has preached kind of the full gospel message through the Old Testament. And as a result, he is stoned 
And in chapter 8 of Acts and verse 1, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, and he would put them into prison. <coughs> so Galatians, again, was a, was, a, was a more detailed picture, but let's get this picture at least in our minds, that early on, the, the, the gospel message was received by thousands of Jews in a single city, and it would have made sense that a lot of them stayed there, studied together, uh, the congregation there would have been, would grown and, and in teaching, especially amongst the apostles. <clears throat> and a great persecution starts and they start to scatter. And one of the leaders of that church, James, is writing a, a letter to, to offer instruction uh, to these people uh, as they have been scattered. So what would that letter look like is what we have uh, in, in the book of James. It also would have been, I think, very early on, because there's not any meaningful mention of the controversy around circumcision. Uh, there's not really any meaningful um, uh, context around that. So, so early on, there are a lot of things that, that James wants to talk to his brethren about, and we're going to talk about them throughout the rest of this year. Um, but but the, uh, the controversy that's surrounding the book of Galatians and the book of Acts uh, chapter 15 isn't one of them. Last introductory comment, and then I'll uh, pause for uh, your own introduction, if you've got any. Um, David's got a mic, and, and, and I've got a mic uh, up here. Three things that I want to try to emphasize uh, throughout the book uh, that have to be, to me, constantly thought about and appreciated in order to understand what James is trying to say. First, James provides a very strong tone of exhortation from a wise teacher. There's a, uh, one commentator I read said that there's more imperative sentences, uh, there's more imperative direction in the book of James than in any other book. Imperative meaning do this, don't do that. There's more of those kinds of things in the book of James, compacted in the book of James, uh, than in anywhere else. The book of Galatians, if you remember, had some of that. Walk in the Spirit, bear one another's burdens, but it was more of an argument about Paul's life, answering false teachers. The, the goal of this letter is to command and to exhort and to encourage, not as direction to soldiers in battle, but as to brothers, that the idea of brothers, brethren is mentioned over a dozen times that I could, that I could count kind of skimming through. Uh, so this is, this is a, a tone of encouragement, a tone of imperative to the people that he's writing to. Okay, so that's number one. Uh, this is written as, a, as an encouragement of things to do uh, from a wise teacher. Secondly, the structure of the letter. Uh, I can't really find one. If you've got one, uh, please help me because I, I don't have one <clears throat> that, that kind of flows. Uh, the book of Galatians kind of flows, and we talked about how Paul had arguments about himself, multiple arguments about the gospel, and then a so what section around walking in the spirit, uh, bearing one another's burdens. Um, 
This one, to me, doesn't have the same kind of structure. In chapter 1, he goes from greetings to trials and temptations to wisdom to being quick to hear to bridling the tongue to different topics uh, around prejudice in chapter 2. <clears throat> it's, it's a little loose, which is why, uh, I don't know if this was on purpose or not, James, Jason, you can claim that it was on purpose, and I'll give you full credit, that it makes sense for us to talk about it in, in, in the end of the year where you know, we're going to be here some, and then we're going to be gone to see family, and we're going to have visitors come in. So I don't really have to spend a lot of time, you know, like I was saying last Sunday, because it won't make any sense. It won't be any, there won't be any relevancy. Uh, well, it's, it's relevant because it's in the book of James, but the topics we talk about today um, will not necessarily be needed, necessary to understand what we're going to talk about next Sunday. The only thing we're going to talk about next Sunday um, that we're talking about now is this slide. The idea that it's, that it's loose. There are a few lengthy sections. There's a couple of like 12 to 13 verse sections in chapter 12, excuse me, chapter 2 and chapter 3, but most of it, from what I, my reading of it anyway, is short, independent, proverb-like paragraphs um, scattered about uh, the book, and we're going to talk about three of them uh, this morning around, around trials and temptations. So see this, if you want to follow with, with my brain, see this as the book of Proverbs. That's how we're going to kind of approach it anyway. The last comment I'd make is before we um, get into the passages for today is very strong use of metaphors and illustrations. Again, sort of like the book of Proverbs, <coughs> the book of Galatians. Now, when we were talking, I mentioned my own uh, loose illustrations. I've got one uh, today, but I feel vindicated uh, by that, because hey, if James can do it, uh, then, uh, then I can do it. Uh, but there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. The sea, the withering flower, the mirror, the horse, the ship, the forest fire, the arrogant businessman, the moth-eating clothes, on and on and on. There are teachings that go in illustration. Um, and they go a long way, I think. Um, sometimes there's no need for further explanation in an illustration. And if you think about who he's writing, Jews scattered about who don't have the wisdom of the church leaders of Jerusalem, don't have the wisdom of the apostles direct hand in hand anymore, you're going to need topics. You're going to need to know what to do, and you're going to need to be taught in a way that I can understand. Um, and... When we teach kids, or when we teach on new concepts, metaphors and illustrations are often what we use, isn't it? Um, such, is the case, uh, such is the case here. Last comment <clears throat> before, uh, before we get into chapter one. <coughs> Excuse me. And I'm going to linger on this a little bit through the class. The style of writing and the topics covered are also uh, related to the Hellenistic Greek culture that would have been around uh, during the day. Um, I read a commentator that put it simply like, like this. The philosophical and religious concepts that are found in James 
are all in the nature of widespread popular concepts that have been familiar to decently educated people in Palestine, where Hellenistic ideas were very widespread. You know, Hellenism, the, the, the Greek history, the Greek language, the, the Greek culture that came, you know, starting with Alexander the Great. These are the concepts that we're talking about. The, the thoughts around prejudice and when I should speak and how I should use my money and how I should see temptation and trial, these are topics that would have been widespread. Again, there's not chapter upon chapter about circumcision or the law of Moses and how we should treat it now. Um, these are more, more practical uh, concepts that we have to, that we have to uncover. We, we see them as, as practical concepts to answer the question, how is a Jewish Christian to relate to their faith in Jesus Christ living in a Greek-influenced world but having a Jewish heritage? How am I supposed to conduct myself? Uh, these are the things that James is going to deal with from a Jewish perspective but having a frame of mind of being a bondservant of our Lord Jesus Christ, okay? Now, comments or questions about anything that I've said uh, up to this point? I got it, uh, David. I agree with what you said, uh, Bill. I kind of look at verses 3 and 4 as being the outline of James. Uh, they're being scattered. They're being... Uh, ejected from Rome, and they're scattered into uh, places uh, that they're not familiar with. All the things he talks about, holding your tongue and what religion is and uh, visiting the fatherless and all of these things, I compare it to when we uh, would go into different countries with the USO. We were given a book that was thick of what to say, what not to say, how to eat, how not to eat, mm -hmm. how to sit. You know, there are things that would offend people. And certainly uh, this trying of their faith when they went into another country, uh, for instance, uh, among the Gentiles, would wear on their faith. There were things that would present themselves to them as maybe certain meats mm -hmm. or certain days and this mm -hmm. and that. And then in verse 4, he says, it, it takes patience. Mm -hmm. You've got to keep your faith while being patient uh, and going into these areas because, again, uh, they were going to be lights to the Gentiles, but they, in order to do that, they had to preserve their own uh, faithfulness. They had to preserve their own uh, religion. Mm -hmm. They had to preserve all the things that they knew to be right uh, because regardless of the countries they were going into and the language and, and the customs, there was also the persecution of the Romans going right. on at the same time. Right. Oh, well said. <clears throat> well said. Again, look at verse 1. They're scattered about. It's easier, perhaps, to do the things that Bruce is describing if we're all in the church of Jerusalem and there's hundreds of us. But if we're now scattered about, how am I supposed to conduct myself? A letter to encourage us in how to do that. Uh, well said, Bruce. Well said. Anyone else? Yes, ma'am. I just wanted to say um, I was watching a doc documentary on um, 
the book of James and on James himself. And they they pulled out of the ground a tomb that said uh, James, uh, the brother of Jesus on it. And the way he describes his physical body, that's the way the body was in the tomb. So there is proof that this James, the brother of Jesus, did live and probably is who this author is. Sure, and, and, he, and, he's, and he's mentioned multiple times in the, in the New Testament. We know he didn't have the best relationship with the, the way that Jesus taught early on, but eventually he finds himself a, a bondservant here. All right, <clears throat> excuse me, all right. I'd like to read, we're gonna talk about how to act like God's people when it comes to trials and temptations. I'd like for us to read chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, and chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, all together. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Verse 12, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when the lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought, <clears throat> excuse me, his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that he would be a con we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of the suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. <clears throat> okay. That was a really bad ending, the way I read that in uh, verse. Uh, I just wanted to, keep, uh, wanted to keep going. It's so good. All right. Sorry, back up, chapter, uh, chapter uh, 1 and verse uh, 2. So, a <clears throat> little uh, Greek lesson. I'm not going to pronounce any of those words. The, uh, the word trial is a very broad word, that the word that's, that's translated trial in my verse 2. Very broad word, difficulty, trial, uh, something bad going on uh, in your life. The word testing in verse 3 is not a very broad word. It is a sense of, of testing as in a smelter's fire, as something that's being tried under uh, difficulty. Same kind of word used in 1 Peter 
chapter 1, um, then there is a, a strength under pressure that is being built up here so that we may be complete, perfect, uh, and, and mature. Um, not to me in perfection when it comes to, to all sin, but complete uh, in this way. So you are going to, right out of the gate, have some things go on in your life, scattered Jewish Christian, that you're going to see as a problem. Life is not a rose garden, Pearl Paul uh, Earnhardt once said. You're not going to be standing around and going around in a rose garden. You're going to have trials and temptations. When these things come, consider it joy. Why? Because endurance will have its perfect result. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Um, lack, when does lacking in nothing happen? Uh, in verse uh, 4. Does it happen in this life? Is it possible for Christians to ever get to this point where they're lacking in nothing? <clears throat> the answer in my mind is yes. It doesn't mean perfect instead of sin, sin in a way of like sinless, which oftentimes we try to read. Um, perfect when it comes to this trial, lacking in nothing, complete, fully mature in how to deal with whatever is uh, before me is the way that I, I tend to read it anyway. Now, if you're a Jew um, and you were brought up in a Jewish culture, let me get, uh, yeah, what's the lesson or what's the answer to the question down at the bottom? How does a typical Jew or someone who was raised as a Jew, who maybe now is a Christian, how do you see trials? How do you see temptations? Why are they in your life in the first place? Any thoughts? Anybody remember what, sorry, yeah. You got it, you got it. Let's emphasize that point in John chapter 9. You can turn there very quickly if you like. John chapter 9 in the beginning of, well not the beginning, as a part of Jesus' ministry, he's healing people. He's, he's preaching to them, and even his disciples have this mindset that John is, excuse me, that Jonathan has mentioned. In John chapter 9, verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth, and his disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Why is this man, why is this man blind? Why is this man going through a trial? The disciples of Jesus only come to one conclusion. Somebody has done something wrong. Therefore, this man is being punished for being born blind. So if you're a typical Jewish person, either in your heritage, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, you know that there's blessings and cursings and blessings and cursings. And in John chapter 9, you even see it. Who, Rabbi, who sinned that this man be born blind? Um, they expected God to bless them for doing good, punish them for their sin. Um, James goes on to me to give a little bit different perspective. Sin is not mentioned anywhere necessarily in, in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 and 4 um, as the reason for the trial. We just know that these trials do exist, full stop. And when they happen, when, we, when they do exist... <clears throat> we are to 
see them, learn from them, and let and, and remember that they are testing, they are testing our faith. We could certainly go around the room. I could pass the mic around and we could talk about various trials. Remember the the illustration that I had uh, offered last week, one of the elders where we used to worship in Texas used to say, everybody you meet is carrying a bag of hammers. Everybody. We could all go around and talk about trials, financial ones, physical ones, parental ones, outside ones that have, that have come upon us. And James, right out of the gate, tells us we are to be Glad that we have these because God has sent them into our lives to make us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Loose loose illustration. This one is mainly for uh, um, Spencer and maybe Tony and maybe Josh isn't here. But uh, for those of you who uh, maybe don't weld, anybody else weld? All right. Well, you're about to get a little bit of a lesson in, uh, in welding. So... Sometimes when you weld two metals together, depending on the, the, the composition of those metals, like ones that have higher concentrations of chromium, and in, our, in my industry anyway, in the oil and gas industry, you can't just weld two pieces of pipe together. There are certain um, uh, combinations of, of, um, of chromium and lybdium and carbon. Some of them have to be post-weld heat-treated. Just bear with me. This is going to last like 90 seconds. Tops. So <clears throat> why do you have to post-weld heat treat? Because when you, put, when you weld these two, these two pieces of pipe together, you've got a base metal that is sound, mature, it's fine. Another piece of base metal, sound, mature, I mean, it's fine. But when you weld them together, the base metal, the heat-affected zone in the middle, and the weld metal, the amount of heat that's, that's put in at the weld and the lack of heat... Uh, maybe an inch, down the, an inch down the pipe, two inches down the pipe, causes a, a reaction, a chemical reaction, that basically puts a lot of stress right at that point. That stress is, is manifested. You see that left-hand side picture and kind of the middle picture and these, these light, dark, light, dark, like these distortions at the, the, the grain boundary. And really, the metal is just stressed out. Yeah, it's together. Yeah, the metal is, is welded together, but it's stressed. And if you put pressure in that pipe, if you put a lot of heat in that pipe or you put hydrogen in it, it's going to crack eventually because it's stressed. So what do you have to do? You have to stop welding, and we put big electric blankets around these pieces of pipe, and we slowly heat them up over an hour, two hours, three hours, up to 1,200 degrees, and put them under even more stress and hold them under stress for a long time, four, six hours, very stressful environment. But when you take that off and you cool it down, you get a more uniform structure down at the bottom where the pictures look basically the same. So the, the, the pipe is behaving basically the same throughout. Stressed at the beginning. And then over time, when put under stress in a controlled, purposeful way, hopefully you're getting the mini-sermon application as I talk, there is a, a relaxing a maturing of the welding. So, how does that apply today? Hopefully, it's, it's, it's easy. When we are justified, when we are buried in the waters of baptism, when we come up, we are bonded to Jesus. But we are not mature in that. 
We can still break. We can still crack. How does God mature us? How does God bring us into a, a more complete relationship with him? James claims through stress, through trials. Yes, there is doing things like we're doing today, studying and reading the word of God together. Yes, there are things like worshiping and praying to God, not discounting any of that. But one of the ways that James claims that we are matured in God is because of the stress that we're put under. If we're not put under stress, if we're not heated up and made uncomfortable, we won't work. We won't work. <clears throat> okay. Feeling me? All right, good. Good deal. Let's, um, let's turn real quickly. I'm going to stop after this section. Okay, no, I'm not. Go ahead, David. You go, man. Go. I'm not a welder. <laughs> and so right. I, I'm going to use a much simpler uh, example, one that my brain can comprehend. Uh, we we uh, become physically stronger by repeatedly overcoming resistance. Sure. And I think about uh, a weightlifter, mm-hmm. sets and reps. It's all about... Uh, increasing the number of repetitions or increasing the amount of weight. And when we do that to muscle failure, our muscles break down and we give them a couple of days of recovery and, and they heal back stronger. And so I think about that repeatedly overcoming resistance, which we could see as trials, tribulations, temptations, makes us stronger over time. Right, right. Let's, let's linger on David's thought a second. Let's talk about the, the middle part of chapter 1, and I'll open up to comments again. When we are tried, when we are in these temptations, we might sin, and there might be a logical train of thought we could take ourselves through. I am a Christian. I believe in the God who created the universe, and he controls everything, including bringing these trials into my life, including bringing these difficulties into my life. He's brought it into my life. I'm tempted and I'm struggling, and I may even tempt to be tempted to act in an ungodly way, and I might do so, and I might sin. Therefore, God is the root of my temptation. Therefore, it is God's fault uh, that I sin. And James is trying to combat this idea in James chapter 1, verse 13. If you have this logic, James says, listen, um, if you're saying I am tempted by God, it's the wrong premise. Why? Because God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. What is the logical way that this should flow? James provides us the illustration in verses 14 and 15. We are carried away by our own sin. We produce it, and it brings forth, and it brings forth death. <clears throat> there was an older commentator of the book of James, temptations and occasions put nothing into a man but only draw out what is in him before. The the idea that God is putting us to the test so that we will sin is a concept that James wants to get right out of the gate and, and, and refute. Do not be led astray. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, in verse 16. God <clears throat> is not the source of any sin, But what is God the source of? Verse 17, good things. Good things given and every perfect gift is from 
the father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. The things that God brings into our lives are the good things. Um, even if those good things manifest themselves as stressful, as trials. Chapter 5 is, is a little bit of a different concept, so I'm going to pause here and see if anybody's got any comments on what we've talked about thus far. just want to go back to Deuteronomy. You think about in Deuteronomy chapter 8 earlier on in, in that uh, exhortation, and so you've got the younger generation that has come through the wilderness. And so Moses is speaking to, to that younger generation. And, of course, he's reminding them, okay, they need to obey God and to keep his commandments, all of that. But particularly in verse 2 and 3 of the 8th chapter where he says, to this younger generation who are now, you know, you know, they're grown up. And he says, you will remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness for 40 years. So here, this generation, most of them grew up under stress, mm -hmm. under a refining process. And he says, and you know, he says, you remember that God humbled you, testing you. And this gets to the point you just made. Mm -hmm. To know what was in your heart, mm -hmm. whether you would obey him or not. And, of course, it goes on to say he humbled you, you know, he let you be hungry, and then he fed you with this manna. Of course, they, you know, they complained about that from time to time. Mm -hmm. you know, and it goes on to say that he might make you understand you know, what you really need to live, live by. And so you think about the idea here That's great. of the 40-year, a lifetime of uh, being tested so that you can grow up. Yeah. No, really well said. Really good reference. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Thank you, David. Anybody else? Hey, David. Alan right here. <coughs> that, uh, the section, you know, starting in verse 12, you know, as he is flowing kind of in the, with the, the logic, it also just answers why is this happening in the first place mm -hmm. in that, you know, explaining that temptation is coming from us because we have ungodly desires. We get enticed by them. And then if we, if we choose to sin and then something comes after sin, you know, once it's born, it grows up into death and this inevitable conclusion. And, you know, James very practically pointing out that it is, it's within us that this is happening. Mm -hmm. There, there is not even an omnipresent, you know, Satan is not omnipresent on everyone's shoulder always whispering like you should do this. Mm. He does tempt us. He's established kind of a system of temptation if we want to refer to it that way. But yeah. it comes from us and it, and it ends in death. Yeah. And so why should I be happy when I'm going through a hard time? Because that can teach me to not be choosing this path of death that I keep choosing Right. And James saying that this is why it's good, because it's saving you from something even worse than this temptation that, that you're facing. Yeah, well said. Well said. Thank you, Alan. Let me try to get through a couple of things about chapter 5. <clears throat> so in chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, there's an illustration. Again, remember, metaphors and illustrations throughout. Uh, and this is the illustration of the patience of a farmer who has to wait, and who has to wait, and has to wait. 
Now, these displaced Jews are no longer farming the land of Israel necessarily, but they're to practice a kind of farmer-like patience, that the farmer's faith in what he's doing is tested. So there's the idea of patiently enduring. Bruce mentioned this um, early on in introductory comments, patiently enduring, um, because these trials are going to continue to come. So just like a farmer has to patiently endure. And then the last, the last thing that he does is he cites a couple of examples that they would have known from their heritage. Verse 10, he even says, as an example, remember the suffering and the patience Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. If you were paying attention for 45 seconds of Jonathan's class on the book of Jeremiah, you would have seen him as an example of verse 10, right? Enduring with suffering and patience who spoke in the name of the Lord, regardless of that suffering and regardless of how much patience he needed. And then the last thing he does is he does cite one of, one of the Old Testament examples by name, uh, the example of, of Job. Job, we all agree that, that Job's friends, even God agrees that Job's friends were unjustly um, accusing Job of having unconfessed sins. The reason you have this problem, Job, is because you have unconfessed, uh, unconfessed sins. Job defends himself, um, and he always uh, trusts in God. And in, in, how does Paul, excuse me, Paul, how does James use the, the example of Job? James is calling our attention to the end of the book of Job, to the outcome. Uh, the outcome is God vindicates Job <clears throat> as a righteous man. We see that in Job chapter 42. God restores Job. God grants him greater prosperity than he had in the past. Not to say that if you endure with endurance that you will be rich like, like Job does. I don't think that's the point. The point is that God vindicates Job and blesses Job because of his relationship with God. Though we may have <clears throat> had a difficulty like Job, Job has an affliction. He proves himself to be full of compassion. God proves himself to be full of compassion and full of mercy. Remember, the same God who in this moment is making me go through a smelter's fire is also the same God who is a God of compassion and who is a God who is full of mercy. Don't be shocked when we're under trials because there's something to learn. This basic summary of what I see in the first uh, couple of sections in James chapter 1 and here in James uh, chapter 5. This is really easy for me to say in a purple shirt on Sunday morning amongst uh, good brothers and sisters like you. It's easy to say. Um, think about it <clears throat> as we walk through the rest of this week. How are you dealing with difficulty? What is your response? What is my response to it? Do we see it as the hand of our loving God putting us under a smelter's fire so that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Um, we should not be surprised by it. We should see it as an opportunity to learn, I think is the point of these sections of, of the book of James. I'm at the end of my piece of paper. Any other questions or comments? Yes, Bruce. <coughs>
I believe chapter five also completes this idea of being patient. Not only be patient in serving God and being examples, but be patient in waiting on the Lord because he who, mm -hmm. who is coming will come and he will not tarry. Uh, you know, we read of some, uh, particularly in Thessalonians and others, uh, who had just given up and, and were waiting for Christ to come and they weren't producing. Uh, others uh, fell away because uh, they grew impatient that Christ hadn't come. Right. And so this patience should be in our prayers. Mm -hmm. Come, Jesus, come even now. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. We don't wait, as, and I, didn't, I failed to draw that out, and that's why it's, it's good to have multiple people reading the same verse. We don't wait as people who don't have a hope, right? We wait as people who do have hope. All right, thank you all very much. <clears throat>